Welcome to King Size. King Through the Ages, as Stephen King podcast. For obsessives, by obsessives. With Matt Robinson and Jamie Stewart. The 1970s. gentlemen constant readers constant listeners welcome back welcome back to king size and uh, we've got a very very special series of episodes coming up for you where we look at stephen king through the ages through the decades and who better to join me to look at uh this wonderful incredible author and his multiverse through the shifting sands of time than the prolific author king expert and friend of the show as well jamie stewart and who has done the chronological read of stephen king's works jamie thank you so much for joining us on this odyssey how are you i'm very well thank you for having me oh it's absolute pleasure absolute pleasure so before we jump in to look at king just um tell us how are you what have you been up to recently talk us through some of the works you've got out at the moment and uh what you what you're writing um i i can currently released this year Montague's Carnival of Delights and Terror which came out this June it's doing really well people seem to be really loving it it's it's a love letter to, to Stephen King it's dedicated to him um, it's a book that's set in the 1980s in Kansas it's about a traveling carnival that comes into this Kansas farming town and on the first day it opens a young girl goes into a roller coaster ride and disappears and the main protagonist finds himself uh, under police investigation as their number one suspect and it's sort of a, a love letter to the sort of books that were written by King and by other authors in the 80s, where they have these, you know, sprawling epic uh, cast of characters and settings set in small town America that sort of focuses on the minutiae of uh, small town life and small town prejudices and things like that. Fabulous, fabulous. And it's been really, you know, we know we've seen it's been really connecting and really connecting with people out there. And, and I love that you say it's a love letter to, to Stephen King. And, uh, you know, I remember when we interviewed you on the show, you said that The Shining was the book that you read that really was like, ah, now this is what I want to do. So I guess Stephen King really is just there as such a spine running through your books and, and your world, right? Absolutely. Like when I when I had finished everything that King had published when I first read him as a teenager, I then researched what influenced him and then found those books. I found Bradbury, I found Matheson, I found Shirley Jackson. And then I just read around him. I read his contemporaries. It was sort of like this. He was a hub and everything else was the spokes of going out to find other interests and other mm-hmm. other genres. And then, you know, Stephen King made me a reader. I wasn't a reader before him, so I fell in love with books through him. But it's also through him I fell in love with the horror genre and then other genres in, in fiction as well. And uh, so I, just, I wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation today with yourself without his uh, his work. 
Yeah, yeah. And likewise, again, you know, we set this up purely as a, our love letter to King as well. So amazing how he's united us and so many people to be able to, you know, to come together and celebrate this incredible author. But you've done something that, you know, not everybody has done, i.e. the chronological read and reread of King um, and your published essays upon that. So just talk us through uh, that before we, we we start at the beginning. Talk us through the chronological read, how it's been for you. Well, I am. Um, God, I started this in November in 2019. Um, I ended up in staying at the Stanley Hotel uh, with my copy of The Shining and reading it and thinking, and listening to the Losers Club podcast and thinking, I have never once, I've always wanted to go back and read King in order, in publication order, and never thought to do it. And I thought, since I'd read The Shining, let's just go back to Carrie and start again and give it a go and see how long I last. Because I'm very much a mood reader. I don't, I don't, I struggle with like, I'm going to set this book aside and I'm going to read it at that week. That doesn't work for me. It never has done. But for some reason, this seems to stick. So anytime I get a craving to read a King book, I just pull the next one that I'm due to read out of the, of my, you know, my bookshelves and read. And so far, um, I've just finished Under the Dome there um, last month. Uh, so it did, which was a, a spectacular reread because uh, mm. I completely forgotten the book entirely. And some, and that has that's been one of the experiences on reading it is I've been introduced to books that maybe I perhaps didn't like the first time, and I've fallen yeah. in love with them, or I've found books that I could not remember at all and fallen <laughs> in love with them again. So it's 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 been a lovely experience, and it's also allowed me to sort of see how King has developed as an author over the years. Mm. Well, I, I completely relate because, again, I'm very much a, a mood reader. And um, I remember when I was lucky enough to uh, be interviewed by Kim C on her brilliant podcast, you know, Year of the Underrated uh, Stephen King. Again, I said to her that there's so many of his books that I reread now, um, you know, decades on from when I first read them. And I'll always remember how they made me feel, but I can't remember the detail. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the content and it's nothing to do with the, that his characters aren't embedded in my mind and heart. It's yeah. just that he's such a, it creates such a feel for me mm-hmm. and like rereading, you know, books like, such as the dead zone and stuff like that recently. I'm just like, Oh wow. I, I'd forgotten everything about it. Yeah. And then others that have these echoes that then start, I go, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. And it starts to reverberate mm-hmm. and these threads that they, they pull upon. And I think, his books are so rich that they allow us to read and reread and reread. And we take so many different things from them, depending on where we're at in our lives as well. Hmm. Yeah. It's what you said there, you remember a feeling. How many times in life do we get something, a, a product, a materialist thing that allows us to recall the memory of a feeling, especially in books, like we read a lot of, I mean, you're readers, we read a lot of books, but there's yeah. very few books that I can say, like when I pick up the stand, I remember sitting in my grandmother's living room while she's watching, you know, EastEnders or something like that. And I'm rem- like in the world of the stand thinking, this is fantastic. You know, yeah. these are the memories that I encounter <laughs> and, and doing the reread, it's kind of like a time capsule for myself because I yes. pick them up and I kind of remember. And, and it's, it's really strange because I remember the location of in which I read them. I absolutely hear you. I wonder if that is something that is particular to King's writing and his connection, because similar to you, I might not remember the characters or I might not mm-hmm. remember the intricacies of the plot, mm-hmm. but I can remember exactly where I was. 
I remember very, very clearly for me, The Shining, mm-hmm. reading it, you know, ha- holding on to the paperback when I was a young kid waiting for a piano lesson, not <laughs> wanting to do the lesson because I wanted to carry on reading. I can remember reading The Tommyknockers on throughout this beautiful summer in the local park. And I can remember where I was sat, what I was wearing. Absolutely. It's almost this you know, incredible razor sharp memory where I'm an old man now. I can't remember (laughs) what I did often in the morning or the day before. I can't Mm -hmm. remember where I left my keys, but I can remember where I was when I read King. I I love how you describe it as a time capsule, right? Yeah, that's what it feels like to me. Like there's some books that I didn't encounter. So I like read Pet Cemetery and didn't like, I I got 50 pages and stopped as a kid. So I came back to it as an adult. Um, but I would say in my twenties and I read the last couple of 50 pages at night in the house by myself in winter, it, it pitch blackness. There was a storm outside. The wind was howling, and I was just <laughs> terrified. You know, we spoke, you know, oh, yeah, a couple of times didn't we, and you, about some of the themes that you'd noticed, you know, so going back to the beginning and working through with that chronological approach and seeing mm-hmm. how King's style and writing has, developed and changed um and that was the spark of the idea of wow wouldn't it be fascinating for you to be our guide to guide us through and to guide our listeners and readers through you know king as a writer how he's evolved and um so why don't we jump start at the beginning right because it seems like that's always a good place to start yeah why not so yeah talk us talk us through king first coming onto the scene so well, uh, we'll go. Well, I think the best way to do this is chop this up into decades, and we'll talk about. So in 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 the seventies alone, yeah. Carrie was published in nineteen seventy four, and then we have Salem's Lot, The Shining, Rage, Night Shift, The Stand, The Long Walk, and The Dead Zone. Those were all the books he published in the seventies. It's a which, pretty good crop, right? <laughs> it's, it's a pretty good. You would be happy with that. If you did yeah, that. that's not too shabby at all, right? <laughs> no. And um, for me, uh, coming through on my reread, I kind of, I noticed that the 70s books, the 70s decade, each one felt like a foundation uh, pillar in creating this kind of idea that King is the master of horror. And each book is done in a very interesting way in that they can be summarized by one sentence. They seem to be focused on one kind of archetype that sits within the horror genre. Uh, Carrie is the story of a pariah. Salem's Lot is the story about a town affected by vampires. Salem's Lot, The Shining is just a haunted house story. Mm-hmm. You know, The Stand is a plague novel. Um, it's only really when you get to the dead zone that the, that you can't really define the dead zone as being uh, summarised by one thing. And that's, I think, where you see King develop as a writer. Because in the dead zone, while, yes, Johnny Smith is a person with powers, but that book is not really about it. It has a mixture of genres of romance, of suspense, of thriller. There's a sort of like political thriller going on with Greg Stilson. There's this sort of romance he has with his former, uh, former not even a lover, but former girlfriend. Mm. And it's, it's a much more complicated book. And I believe at the time King had an interview where he talked about, I don't consider myself a horror writer. I consider myself a suspense writer. And the yeah. suspense writer is like living in a house with all these rooms to go into, to neutralize. And that's what the dead zone kind of comes mm-hmm. about. And then from then on, his books transform and change. But the ones in the 70s, those early books, they seem to be sort of like focusing on one kind of main 
theme that runs throughout each one and they're sort of pretty much dedicated to it and devoted to that theme so you know bullying is obviously the first thing we come to mind when you think of Carrie Mm -hmm. the abuse she experiences at the hands of you know her fellow pupils uh and all that and uh, what fat and her basically her revenge by having this powerless individual being given extraordinary power Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's what I've noticed in my reread. What about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, I, I, it's a tricky one, is it? Because we'll we'll tread lightly because we don't want to give. We won't. We will try and keep it as spoiler free as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but the themes, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I noticed that. I mean, I noticed that as you mentioned, those first few books very clearly more. I guess if we're going to put them in, uh, define them, horror books. Yeah. And I remember at the time, his editor said to him, "Well, look, you know, you've just done Carrie. Mm-hmm. If you then release Salem's Lot or um, Second Coming, as it was to be called before Tabitha said, no, 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 <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a really bad sex book." <laughs> You're going to be pigeonholed as a horror writer. Yeah, and that's where the muse went. I think at the time, you know, yeah. And if that hits you, if you're if you're compelled to write a story, then thank God he felt he followed through because we got some great some great books. Well, we did, didn't well, we? Nearly didn't get Carrie, um, did we? Because I mean, he he started Carrie, wrote it didn't think it he could really capture that that protagonist and capture mm-hmm. her voice. Put it in the trash can. And it was Tabitha who picked this, picked it out of the trash and said, yeah. Look, hang on, there is something here. You're onto something. Don't throw this away. Mm-hmm. And thank God. And also we have to play pay in mind that the fact that King, when starting in his career, not a lot of people, even even writers back then, didn't necessarily work full time in writing and were able to support their family full time in writing. His success was also upon the fact that Brian De Palma's film of Carrie. Mm. you know shot off and that's propelled his book sales into you know the stratosphere and that made people interested in his book sales uh so the films that were being made of them at the time you know you look at carrie you also look at the film the, the tv movie they did of salem's lot and eventually stanley kubrick's the shining which is in 1980 yeah. in this light as the the horror the master of horror the king of horror and mm. uh yeah and you're completely right these books do feel like his closest to like straight horror that he's ever done and he maybe goes back, you maybe have a book like Revival or something like that that he'll do where it sort of captures that that straight line horror that he, you know, everyone thinks that everyone sort of is set, that's the one they prefer. Yeah. Um, but no, I, that's that's my sort of read of the 70s kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, Rage and, and The Long Walk, the reason why I don't mention them as much is because they were kind of side projects. He released mm. them under Richard Bachman's name. It was kind of this... Uh, experiment for himself to see if he could probably something under a different name and it could it do as well um so that's why but at the same time rage gain a pariah character and yeah. that the, but it's it's a role reversal there's no superpowers it's just you know it's just a person with a gun and, and it's interesting isn't it because again the batman character almost came about because uh, as well he was so prolific and mm. he was writing so much and again as you said he wanted to check you know kind of would people still buy his stuff if it didn't have king against it but also he had an he needed more than just one book a year yeah um and because that success in the 70s came pretty swiftly didn't it i mean carrie was 
you know, Carrie yeah. was a big, big hit. Um, and, yeah. you know, I mean, I know he'd been writing for a while and really, really just, you know, he had kids to support and they're all living in the one trailer. But once it happened, it happened in a really, really fast meteoric way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's sort of, I suppose with that, I would be so hard to sort of, you know, because the readers, the fans, if you're if you're jumped into a readership that is a fan base, because people have readers and people have fans. And I think there's a lot <laughs> of people that became Stephen King fans pretty quick on. They probably wanted that stuff. Uh, they wanted the horror stuff. They wanted more. But there's mm-hmm. also interesting things like Night Shift only came about because he owed his publisher a book and the stand was taking so long to write because it's, you know, a thousand, two hundred pages long. Yeah. Um. So he gave them, you know, his collection of short stories. And it's really sort of strange for me because the short stories are so amazing. Like that's still considered his best collection, but it's like something he just threw at a publisher at last minute to ensure that a, that a book came out in that year. And you're <laughs> kind of like, wow, that's like, you know, and there are so good. There's so many good stories yeah. in Night Shift alone. Like I know there's only, there's yeah, compared to say the eighties and how many books that we're going to talk about in the eighties, mm-hmm. the seventies stuff, there isn't as many books, but if you look at the amount of short stories that are in Night Shift alone, have been made into films or mm-hmm. that have, you know, there's phenomenal amount of sort of creativity going on mm-hmm. and you definitely get a sense of like from Carrie to Salem's lot, you get a sense with the success of Carrie that King was able to sit down at a desk and be like, I'm going to show the world what I can do. Yeah. I have the time now. I have the money now. Let's show, this is the book that's going to be in some ways Salem's lot feels like it's like that, you know, when you listen to music and you listen to the first album, any band has, and you're kind of like, they haven't got the financial kind of support to it to like, to release the album they want to and then the yeah second, like, they're like that's the album they want this is their first album that's kind of what Salem's Lot feels like to a way I love that analogy <laughs> and, and it's it's so interesting Jay because when you were talking about it that's what I was hearing in my head and specifically I'm a huge Nirvana fan and I was hearing Bleach you know their mm. first album made on a shoestring and it had you know it, it, the production wasn't great but it had something it was really stripped down mm-hmm. but it had this track about a girl that had all these beautiful Beatles leanings and melodies and everyone was like wow oh my god Kurt Cobain is writing something so, this guy's got something mm-hmm. and then the leap from that to Nevermind you know with yeah. Smells Like Teen Spirit and uh, Jeff and uh, Warner Brothers behind it and the money the budget to make that sound so so huge and vast. I mean, it, it, the leap is is, is astonishingly huge. Uh, Carrie really strikes me as this thin down, yeah, very, yeah. very. You know, you don't have this huge multiverse. And then we go to Salem's Lot, where it's the first time as a reader, right? We're introduced to the multiverse of King. Yeah. Decide who's going to go, I'm going to create a whole, whole host of characters, almost Shakespearean, right? Where you have your list of characters at the beginning as they've got in Under the Dome. It's uh, for me, Salem's Lot is kind of like um, King playing to his strengths because even as a novel, if you look at the 70s works, it's very interesting in a way because you can, if you're dissecting them, you can tell he has talent as a short story writer because he breaks down novels in short story form Salem's Lot is essentially look if you think about all the vignettes mm-hmm. to to establish all those we the characters are within the town they're wee short stories on their own and it's just basically a compilation of short stories about those characters within a town setting it's only until like The Shining you get to that that's like 
the real kind of like novel novel like this is him you know attempting at that that pace but you can tell that like Salem's Law is his you know relying on the short the short story skills he's had to you know do that because yeah short story Salem's Law is is a is a is a novel about vampires coming to a town but in order to create those characters he had to create stories for them in the town you know you have the Mm. person living at the dump you have the town drunk that lives in the basement of the um of the of the the boarding house and he's had an affair with this woman that he's in love with all his life that runs the boarding house all those stories they're tiny short stories aren't they really we can say that at the end of the day that's what they are and then you jump to Salem as shining and what he does is he cuts himself off by not having a big cast he is wendy he is danny he has uh jack and then mm-hmm. a couple of supporting ones, but he has these people inside a mansion or inside a hotel for the duration of a winter. And it's like cutting himself off in the way that those characters are cut off in order for him to like deep dive into. And King's always been really great yeah. at backstory about getting to the emotional heart of a character. Yeah. But you see that mostly in The Shining. Because if you look at Ben Mears as a protagonist, his biggest complaint in the Salem's Lot book against it, the biggest criticism of that book is that Ben Mears' character is a bit too noble, a bit too one-dimensional. Mm-hmm. So you go into The Shining, then you see Jack, you see Johnny, you see Wendy. He is pipelined into the soul of those people. So he has. I Yeah, uh, absolutely. And amazing that to be able to go so so wide with the universe he creates in Salem's Lot, but as you say, filled with intricacies and characters and beautiful stories. And then, yes, stripping them all back and shutting us in with just a very small cast of characters with The Shining. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he's just, he's he's discovering what he can do, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like figuring out for himself. But, you know, you look back in his history and you, you you see that he wrote for men's magazines because he didn't have the opportunity. Like, to, because he had two kids, he was barely making you know a wage with himself and his wife. And like even uh, even The Shining, I know I like it is a, it is a novel, but if you look at the stories he gives Jack, Wendy, and Danny, like the the flashbacks, the the time with you know Danny in the arm, they are almost tiny vignettes inside that novel that right. make up you know the actual grand theme. You know, so again, you see him just being able to sort of deliver that you know the same with the stand like the stand is essentially a massive short story collection about all these characters dealing with the same thing you know the end of the world um yeah and and it's fantastic for it um so you you see a maturing and 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 develop and and honing those skills and to be able to tell a coherent kind of uh, through line tale, uh, you know, relying on his talents as a short story writer in order to provide, mm. you know, the sort of, you know, the scares and the thrills, and the chills and the backstory mm. and the emotional kind of payoff. And then you, I think you get to the dead zone and that's a coherent book all the way through, you know, there's a lot of things he's tried, like Ben Mears. King has always had these protagonists that are like the everyday man, which I think was unusual in that time period in the 70s I think for mainstream fiction in order to be successful your main character had to be strange there had to be something about him that was unique whether it was his privilege or whether it was just his personality they just had to have a quirk about him but kings have always sort of everyday noble human being not not noticeably you know talented not noticeably skilled at something but just a good human being and mm. everyone gets told that's kind of boring but mm. and you know we see from Ben Mears and Salem's thought that's the criticism place there but Johnny Smith is essentially a good guy. Like there's nothing, you know, there's nothing remarkable. Yeah, he's got a psychic power, but he's just sort of this, but we, 
love him like a lot like Johnny Smith is considered one of his most like lovable characters because he's so sort of like human it's interesting isn't it because the dead zone feels like it's the first one where he's trying all these different styles as you mentioned there's part of it is you know a lot of it is a political um Mm -hmm. almost a satire in some way Mm -hmm. you know like, I mean, like Grace Stilson is is for sure. Uh, uh, he's prophesized Donald Trump. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's incredibly prescient, right? In the same way that when he wrote Rage and about you know the horrors of a school shooting. I mean, uh, this stuff is 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 close to the bone and and, and happening. Um, but and you even know, Frank Dodd. Don't forget Frank Dodd. Well, like this, the amount of, the amount of serial killer documentaries we get nowadays, and you know that was not really known back then. I mean, the seventies would have had um, John Wayne Gacy, mm, um, but mm. like there wouldn't have been, I think, as many known psychopaths and, and serial killers in America at the time in the seventies when that was book was written. But that book has small, like what is it, two chapters or something about this awful, awful killer. And it's done so well. Like Frank Dodd, I've always said Frank Dodd is one of the most terrifying king villains for me. Uh, yeah. And what surprised me with The Dead Zone is that for a lot of writers, and don't forget, you know, we're a few books in with King, the Frank Dodd character and the Frank Dodd um, storyline would be the main storyline. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that would be the one that, you know, that would be, that's a thriller stone cold classic thriller and we run through and then there's a chase and it's on and on and on and when i read the dead zone and when i re-listened to it actually listened to the audiobook it shocks me um that actually king has the balls to go now that's not going to be my main thread through my main thread on my spotlight exactly that happens and i'll write that but i'm also it's not just a crime thriller far from it what i'm really interested in here Mm. is the political angle as well Mm -hmm. Um, and there's so many strands there, you know, the, the Johnny Smith trying to find his way in a world where he has these gifts mm-hmm. that are also a blessing as much as they are, well, a curse as much as they yeah. are a blessing. Mm-hmm. And that's the thread for me. They are everyday people, but they there is something about them that this fine line between, you know, gift and burden blessing and curse seems to be really present in so many of King's characters, you know, from Carrie to Johnny Smith. Then as we go through to the eighties to Charlie and Firestarter, but you know, it's good people that have something different about them. Yeah. Right. There's a nobility, I think about Johnny Smith that is Mm. sort of, it rarely or just sort of it just shines through and that allows him to you know there's so much he could use his ability whatever for profit he could use that but at the end of the day he's just a he's just an, a person who wants um you know he's been locked inside his body for five years and everything's changed the love of his life is gone and the world as he know it is gone and his mum has this awful you know uh mental condition reliance on you know um, you know, I don't, uh, you know, religious cultism yeah. and all this stuff, and it's a lot to take in. He just wants to be normal, and it's sort of it makes you as a reader read that book and sort of scream at it in some ways. You know, in some because you feel so badly for him, you're like, oh, can you not do you know like this? Because mm. you think as a reader, oh, it'd be cool to have psychic powers. It'd be cool to be able to you know uh, move objects with your mind or you know set something on fire, but you know maybe for a second, and then you realize the world ramifications of that of that you know 
yeah. actual the actuality of it, which he, dep- he depicts with you know like the journalists being obsessed of him. One of the things I always remember about the Dead Zone is the journalist that turns up at his house. And he throws oh away. yeah, yeah, I yeah, love yeah. that scene. I yeah. thought that's a great scene. It, it's great, isn't it? And the t- the way that King captures this journalist trying to befriend Johnny, and then you know, kind of how it quickly turns the minute Johnny's like, "Look, I'm not interested in you." Yeah. The dead scene yeah. for me, it kind of feels like um, Shakespearean, or like one of those not like uh, the world according to Garp. It's like this one individual, and we're taking you through his life. You know, yeah, that's why he doesn't yeah. have the spotlight of the serial killer thing, because it's more about Johnny, you know? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Any other writer would have been like, I've got this great idea for a, a villain and I'm going to so focus on him. But yeah. King sort of has cho- chose right then and there. And at the time, he had not written like a serial killer slasher kind of book. So there must have been a temptation there to be like, this could be my slasher book. But he didn't. He he let you know. He, he let this. He he focused on Johnny and let the character do the walking. And um, you know, and I think that's why we're still talking about it with to such with such love. I think so, and I think you know potentially looking back on it now, you know, the Dead Zone might be viewed as almost like that difficult album, you know, mm-hmm. where he's because absolutely on the string of the back of the novels that you mentioned in the seventies, the Dead Zone feels to be the one that is most, you know. If I'm going to be crude about it, the most literary. Okay, yeah. it it it's got the most adult themes. It's the one that actually you know, spends. We've got quite. We've got chunks and chunks of pages where we, you know, Johnny's um, studying Greg Stilson and talks about his back catalogue and his, his backstory, and it's the minutiae of it. But it mm. could potentially be high risk because it's not filled with you know chase a minute blood spatter again he's you know the frank dodd story he's chosen to just hold very lightly but as you say created an incredible character so already it's that one where he's going hang on i'm not just a horror writer i'm not just a thriller writer uh i'm showing you here what i can do flexing his literary muscle but it might have probably i don't know if it would have confused people at the time yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I know that at the time King got a lot of criticism for his books, uh, critically mm. from you know, you know, the reviewers at the time because they were an older generation of reviewers and they did know it, but he had mass support popularity from readers. And I think that actually, you know, people there was that old age thing of if you're popular, you're not good. You know, you're 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 not quality if you're popular, and he was certainly popular. And so, to a certain degree, maybe he was, you know, reacting to that criticism of trying to gear what yeah. his, um, you know, the ideas he had towards them and attempt this. But at the same time, I think as much as that's there, and I do think that's that's a very small part of his inspiration. I think the man is just so prolific, so creative. He just has these multiverse of stories within mm. himself to tell mm. and he just tells them you know he's not con- he doesn't confine himself to one genre and i think with the dead zone you're seeing that break out and bear in mind i know the dead uh, the different seasons comes out in the 80s but he had written the body and he had written i think shawshank at this time at the end of the 70s so he was mm. going into that phase of mm. uh, what i like to think of the 80s for myself is king being so experimental because yeah. it's very hard to pinpoint a specific book as it is with the 70s to say this is mainstream horror yeah yeah absolutely so before we dive into the 80s just again it's that thing of in the dead zone you know i i mean he when he brings to life greg stilson i mean it could be donald trump right yeah 
And that's the thing with King, you know, you're reading so, so many times I've heard people go, oh my God, this could almost be a Stephen King novel. Mm, right. Yeah. Again, you know, the world, what we've lived through, obviously with, with COVID and what everybody has been through and everyone's situation has been different, but, you know, let's cast our mind back to, you know, only a couple of years ago in a world before the vaccine, when the race was on to try and find vaccine for COVID and, you know, everybody was isolating, everybody was in lockdown and death toll was really high. People had no idea of what the future might hold and what, you know, the predictions of the mortality uh, and the impact COVID would have. And again, it did. It felt like, and again, I don't mean this in a crude way, but it felt like we were living in a King novel. Yeah, I understand. And I then, you know, as I've shared with people before, I reread The Stand during that period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so did my wife um, during that. And I remember King saying, horror, it can be incredibly cathartic. Yeah. Because actually, when you lose yourself in in a horror book, you know, you lose yourself in something like that, it makes you breathe the air of what's around go hang on this isn't so bad or hang on a minute there's real catharsis in it's not as bad as captain trips yeah and not in any way them you know using that in a facetious way but the scope of the stand oh. right? how so how many books in are we jamie run us through again um, he, so seven, run us through his 70s book we've books. got carrie we've got uh, carrie, carrie salem's lot shining rage night shift and then you're on the stand so book six <laughs> book six yeah and he writes you know yeah and he writes biggest... it within a year within a year it took him wow. a year to write like what thousands so and bear in mind what the the book that was published in the 70s was a 400 page shorter than the book that was now available now it came out in the 90s it was so it was shorter it was edited down so yes. he has 400 more pages <laughs> on that that he still had written and were you know at a certain degree better and i think the reason why was again publishers couldn't produce a book that big <laughs> yeah and it is his biggest it is his biggest book isn't it, it it's yeah. bigger than it and yeah i would urge any first time readers or audiobook listeners to to go for the uh uncut version because yeah. for me those 400 pages they, ju- they just add so much yeah. more there's a bit in it that I, so my favorite bit of the stand mm. is doesn't and i just it just i remember reading it and being like so i had to put the book down and think and um, and it's not about any of the main characters. That's what I love about it. It's about a character I don't think you even get the last nail on. But it's a small vignette about a woman who shoots herself because the, the, the plague has happened. People are dying and she's afraid of being, you know, um, she's afraid of the future, afraid of anything. I think she's been afraid of the, of the opposite sex as well. And I think she's afraid of, you know, being raped or something like that or assaulted. I think that's her head process at sign. And there's a man who's drunk in the street who comes towards her and she shoots herself in the face in front of him. But you see the man's perspective of it. And you get this in this is perspective that blew my head away because she thinks initially that he is going to be like, you know, assaultive or attack her in some way. And he's not that way at all. He, yes, he is inebriated, but he's actually just like, you're a fellow human being that's survived along with me. And then he sees her shit herself and he's just so depressed. And it just sort of, I had to put the book down because I just thought, oh, like, I can't, like, 
I can't believe you went there. I can't believe you did that. I wanted that character to survive, you know, sort of thing. I felt such empathy for that person, you know, and, and, ah, oh, so again, that's his short yeah. story, you know, talent, just like pulling that out of the hat, you know, again, that, that character was only made to show the reader why the rest of the world is coping, not necessarily the main characters in the book. Yeah, and, and it really taps into that thing of King, you know, with King, there are no such thing as small characters because each of these characters no. has such a richness. And as you said, that's yeah, that's the character, we don't even know her name, that has gripped your heart and, and, and stayed with you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the stand is filled with, I mean, you know, I think it's the first time we meet Randall Flagg. Um. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, in his universe, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's the first time, you know, from him to, I mean, the brilliant Harold. Um, mm. you know, really well written. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really brilliant. You know, you know, trash can. Mm-hmm. He, sh- he shows you that he has the talent for writing villains in such a way that they're very mm-hmm. empathetic, you know, empathizable with them. You know, trash can man. Harold, you know, Harold is essentially a villain and, yeah. uh, and you know, and there's sort of like that everyday man and Stu that sort of, I think everyone bypasses Stu and goes to Larry because Larry's good, but he has such darkness to him that everyone <laughs> sort of, a, there's an appeal to Larry and they're worried about that. <laughs> You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the thing. King is able to really write those characters that mm-hmm. have a bit of roughness to them, but yeah. that charm as well. Absolutely, because yeah. Stu's almost his archetypal good guy, right? Yeah, the, li- the light as opposed to Randall Flagg's darkness. Mm-hmm. But Larry is the guy you want to hang out with, right? Yeah. He's the one you want to be. He's a- yeah. and again, it taps into King's love of rock and roll. You know, yeah. the stand for me is such a musical book. I can just hear Larry's guitar and his voice running through the whole thing yeah, um, it feels like a, it feels like a Bruce Springsteen album yeah right man right and Trashcan you know again this character that you mentioned earlier on about bullying being a theme mm. that are in particular in the 70s we're seeing you know yeah yeah and, and mums it, there was also a theme yeah. of mums which yeah, I tell, tell me about that he, he has a way of depicting sort of well, well, I'll talk about the stand first and, and just write yeah. that down so I don't talk, forget about it. Yeah, yeah, but, um, yeah. One of the, my favourite characters in the stand the first time was Nick. I love Nick Ambrose. And, yeah. and, you know, obviously you're reading that book and you don't know what's going to happen to him. And I completely empathise with him because he was kind of this sort of just guy wanting to get through life as easy as he could. And he's deaf and he gets bullied at the beginning of the book. He gets assaulted just for, um, I think, just there's some reason for it. Maybe it's his deafness or something, but some drunk guys assault him and, and he ends up having to look after them at the end of their lives and takes care of them. And that's and right. Yeah. It's so heartfelt. And then King does what he does to that character. And I, I that again, I had to put that book down and think, can I continue on? Cause you've just taken my favorite character away from me. You know? <laughs> yeah. He, and it's so interesting is it? Cause he does that with some of your fa- the favorite characters, whether we love them or we hate them he's very, very quick to kill his darlings because he's so brave, right? Yeah. And he, he will pull the rug out or suddenly he'll just within a sentence foreshadow yeah. that this yeah. character that you know and, and you're going to spend some time with is going to die imminently. Yeah. And because, because The Stand is such an ensemble cast book, I never look at it as being like one, there is one main character. I don't think of Stu Redman as being the main character. And I remember mm. reading it the first time. Mm. And when Stu's the one that lives when they go to Vegas, I remember saying to the book, him? You're going to let him live? Really? <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, just because it is a sample cast and you, you all have your favourites and you find out every single favourite one I had and that book killed. <laughs> it's, it's like personal. It's like he knew. It's like he's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. again, he knows you'll make those attachments and that makes it even more realistic almost isn't it you know that yeah. you know those characters they some of them aren't going to last through what they're going through yeah. um but again it's that time he's he's dipping back into that multiverse right that yeah. he created with uh salem's lot but i'm fascinated mm-hmm. by as you say actually it's the short story author within him that yeah. is creating and building these jigsaws right and, yeah. and they're jigsaws for a bigger piece. And, and that's what I think. That's why some of the books are so big, I think, at that period in, in his life. Because, you know, everyone jokes, oh, Stephen King's love of backstory. But it, it really is, you know, the characters that come on to the stage are very much allowed to be full on, you know, people. And that's what he does by, you know, these short story telling you know, devices. It's what I've done myself when I've written like my my latest novel I was working on. I kind of looked at every individual chapter within that book as a separate short story that could be taken and read separately. I couldn't do that for everything I've written, but I certainly see it in King's early work very much. And um and it it, to a success. Mm. Um but we we talked about mothers there and and I just there's such an interesting thing of mothers in the 70s, but he's, he has, you know, his father walked out of him, as we know. Um, he had a, he was raised by a single mum. So you would imagine that he has a lot of affection and love for his mum, but all the female mothers that he writes about are awful. <laughs> uh, like from Carrie White's mum, Margaret White, in the, in the first book, who's this, yeah. you know, this person that's, um, you know, just unwell, you know, mentally unwell and using religion to hide mm-hmm. that unwellness and being a bully and an abuser to your daughter, yeah. um, you know, for anything, for basically any sort of individuality. And then you jump to Salem's Lot with Susan's mother, Susan Norton. Mm-hmm. She has an overbearing mother mm-hmm. of a different kind of nature. And she just sort of uses her middle class sort of, classism to sort of bully Susan because she doesn't want Susan to have any lesser of a life and she's sort of afraid of how Susan's actions are going to be perceived on her to the community at large Wendy mentions something about a mother in The Shining but it's not really touched upon but then you've got Franny's mum which I'm sure you remember that scene I remember being so horrified by that chapter where you meet Franny's mum and Franny telling her she's pregnant yeah yeah, horrific stuff, and the fact that her father defends her, and I remember this sort of like it's almost like a, a like a hero moment when the father steps in, and then she slaps her own daughter in the face, and you're yeah. and you know, and King seems to try these ideas. He seems to get ideas and refine them, and I think with the dead zone you have Johnny's mother Vera who goes mm. into these sort of delusions of grandeur with the religious cultism and believing her son is this person, you know, that's come back and saved. And you can see the wear it has on her husband and stuff. And, and I always sort of hated Vera. Um, but when I read the reread, I've had such empathy for her because I just thought you're just somebody who just misses their son who's just been... yeah. You know, some of the other mothers, you know, there's no, you know, I have no empathy for Margaret White. You don't feel any empathy for Margaret White as a person in Carrie mm-hmm. for, you know, bullying uh, Carrie or maybe Susan Morton's mum for sort of being sort of so, so insecure about her position in her mm-hmm. community that mm-hmm. she's actually toxic to her daughter. I don't have sympathy for her. But Vera, who from the dead zone, I do have a lot of sympathy for. I understand. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, and as Herb, you know, her husband says, you know, when he opens up to Johnny, he said, "Look, there were times that I prayed that you would die." Mm-hmm. She never did. You know, she yeah. always prayed that you would live and knew that you would survive. And a beautiful moment where he's with his dad, and his dad's just like, "Son, you know, I've got to be honest. This is what I prayed for." And again, it's just nothing but heartbreaking and beautiful love. But Herb is a really strong defender of his wife. Yeah. Uh, And and again, it is the empathy that often King's characters show those other characters that Mm -hmm. I go, hang on, this isn't just one dimensional. This isn't just a mother comedy. This is, you know, this is somebody here who has just got got misguided and you know but if her husband can stand by her because there is goodness there then let me reassess how i'm reacting to her as a reader yeah and it's really interesting i think well for me as a reader the when herb said that i loved herb but if you take the context of what herb has said he's wished his son to be dead yeah it's an awful thing yeah but you love him for saying it and admitting it but then you hate vera but she's the one that never gave up. And, you know, sort of movie logic and one dimensional storytelling has taught us through our lives that these are the opposites and we shouldn't like or love these people for that. What? They should be the other way around. But right. it's so great at develop, you know, creating this wealth of sort of emotion that you, you know, feel this for the opposites of what you've been taught to feel. Yes. Know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and capturing, you know, capturing mothers as well. I mean, you know, that's what I found so for me abhorrent about, Kubrick's The Shining Um, and it was the fact that it took the Wendy character and and really just stripped her of her nobility her strength Wendy for me is a very closely linked to Donna who we'll meet later in Cujo you know these fearless um, powerful warrior mothers you know who are fighting against abuse and uh, you know but they're they're just trying to keep their 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 cub their child safe yeah wendy Um, the voice of reason really within yeah and and uh, but at the same time you know when you're in wendy's thoughts particularly at the beginning of the book and you're able to indulge in kind of like the love she has for her husband and stuff it's so loving and and so sort of you know, pure. And I think one of my favorite moments for Wendy is the moment where out of frustration, she climbs into the elevator and pulls the confetti out. And and Jack at this point is in denial and all this stuff about the house being haunted. And all that was just Wendy, like being a badass that that's, you don't see that in this, in the film. You don't see Wendy like take charge like that. Yeah. And you know, King, King opens his batting, obviously, by, you know, writing from Carrie's point of view. So right from the beginning, the first time, you know, he's writing from, you know, the the opposite sex. How, as a writer yourself, uh, you know, how... Is that a bigger challenge as to a non-writer like myself, it sounds? Or how how do you capture that? Well, I think it would be certainly a bigger challenge for him, who was a ma- you know a, an adult man with two children, who hadn't mm. gone through high school as a female uh, mm. at the time, and you know he was, I think he was coming at it from his point of a teacher. He was a teacher, and he was basing it on two people that he seen bullying growing up or had taught, and mm. was seen in the sort of the student body then. But I think that's where Tabitha helped him to get into the mindset of that person. Mm. Um, so it is, and as someone like I'm currently writing a book set in two thousand. 
too. So trying to get into the headspace of those people and what I was back then and, you know, to, to help myself talk about what those characters were influenced. It is a challenge because, you know, um, you, you know the life you've lived, but, um, when you're trying to work those, like, for example, you know, the, the villain characters, the characters that you have never shared thoughts of, you know, the Greg Stillisons, the Frank Dodds, if you're able to do that, which King is so, he has such a talent for putting his, putting you into the headspace of someone else. Um, he does it really well, I think. And and the fact that Carrie is, you know, protagonist for the first book that he's ever written, I think is, it shows that there's a lot of, there is, degrees in King's writing that we have to say, you know, the the sort of, he has ticks and one of the ticks is to always reference a woman's body in a sort of objective way. And, uh, and that's not, you know, that's not, that's something that we just, we know now is not right and not to be approved of, but he has always, but again, that's coming from the culture of what he was reading and, and the men's gaze and, and that it, that was at the time how people wrote stories. And, you know, that's what he was basing that on. I don't think he is, you know, sexist. I certainly don't. Um, but he's always been great about putting um, you as a reader and himself into the headspace of characters, no matter what gender they are or yeah. what background they are. And interestingly how, you know, we have some of the monsters are vampires, as we know, in Salem's Lot. Um, and, and, and in The Stand, we have Randall Flagg. And mm-hmm. a lot of the m- monsters, if you like, that King's writing about in this 70s period are frighteningly human or inhumane. But, you know, from, from, from Jack's descent um, to... You know, to Frank Dodds, to Stilson, to, you know, the kids that bully Carrie White. Um, Charlie Decker and Rage. I mean, he's the main character and he's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Abs- it, it's the it, it, it's the human side, right? Yeah. That's- the lack of human side, because there's those soldiers mm. in the long walk and it's this sort of they don't view the people in the long walk that are human anymore. They're, they are, there's this anti feeling from them, you mm. know. They have mm. to view them as that because at the end of the day, they have to take their lives. That's their job. Mm. But um, yeah, mm. but it's this human being that's I'm refusing to meet you on an emotional level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the Long Walk. I mean, again, that was one of one of his seventies books. Obviously, as you mentioned. Uh, I mean, <laughs> what a crazy premise. That was seventy nine. That one. So out the same time as the Dead <laughs> Zone. Uh, I remember reading that uh, sunny, cheerful book on my honeymoon. <laughs> and, uh, but again. <laughs> It's that tapping into the what if yeah. that I, that King does so well. Mm-hmm. What if and putting yourself in that situation, you know, I wonder how I would do in that situation. Yeah. What would I be like if I had to do that? What would my tactics be? And that is why I believe even when his books are fantastical, there's always a connection of, you know, as, as the reader, we we insert ourselves into that universe and we think, what would I do in this situation? Because his characters have such a richness to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. Like like Sarah from dead zone. um, I think every reader fell in love with Sarah. Oh yeah. You know, that is, and she's, but if you look at the page count of how much she's in that book, I don't know, 50 pages maybe. Yeah. In a 450 page book. But you just fall in love with her. You're just like you are. I've never met anyone 
he has ever had a problem with Johnny Smith and Sarah as human. Like <laughs> I, I say, human beings are fictional characters, but <laughs> that's you know that's how but well that, they're written. But you hit the nail on the head there, Jamie, because that is you know we are here, right, taking a deep dive mm-hmm. along with many, many hundreds of people that we taking this deep dive with us mm-hmm. because they feel like real people, right? These are characters mm-hmm. that came from the rich, fertile imagination yeah. and hand of Stephen King. But they feel real. And I know, you know, Simon once said, you know, yeah, I had friends growing up. My friends were Johnny Smith. And you know, <laughs> characters such as that and Nick Andros that feel so real. Um, so, you know, Rage, you, we mentioned, obviously, I, I believe I'm right in saying that Rage was, um, you know, one of the books that, that King, you know, later on in retrospect in the wake of many school shootings has had pulled from the bookshelf so are people still able to get hold of that or is it no i don't think you can buy that new in any form it's secondhand copies that only exist that have been printed that still exist and that's what mine is my my copy is the backman books you know yeah where they're collected so i have it in that so i didn't read that until much later in life until i found it through, through a friend actually she had it and I bought it off her, so I did. I um, wonder if, and I'm interested, Jamie, because as you know, Hodder um, mm-hmm. uh, are bringing out obviously new covers yeah. for every King novel, um, and the latest set coming out just before Halloween is is the, a lot yeah, of the Batman, Batman books. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder if Rage will be one of them. I don't know. I think you know. At the end of the day, it, it's it's not something I personally when I read that book the headspace of Charlie Decker is like swimming in bile. I do not in any way feel sympathy for him. I do not in any way feel mm-hmm. like it promotes that type of uh, behavior of taking mm-hmm. a gun and shooting in a school. You know, it does not. It makes the opposite. It makes the argument of how disgusting mm-hmm. it is. You know, it, mm-hmm. I just felt disgusted reading that book. You know, mm-hmm. I, I have this term for books that I of King that I reviewed kind of poorly, uh, you know, with one-star reviews and stuff because I called them headache books because it gave me a headache reading it and that was the book that started that off and i should say that the reason why i i review i i do i review the books that i read of king in comparison with other king books so if i'm reading the shining and giving it five stars i'm comparing rage to the shining and if rage is not as good as the shining it gets a one-star review you know so that's what i'm comparing it to that's my comparison gotcha justify being able to review them gotcha Um, gotcha and and uh, just talk to us because again you know blaze officially came out in 2007 it was a found inverted commas backman book but yeah i believe it it was one of the earlier ones that he wrote it, he wrote that and the set and salem's lot together or back right back, and it was a choice of one of the two and um <laughs> and you know but again the 2007 one has has been edited so you don't know what the original manuscript probably looked like because yep. he was very much playing on the the of mice and men theme um in that book um but i find blaze a phenomenally heartfelt read uh, and it's a book that's half made up of flashbacks of this character who's called blaze and when i read flashbacks in most books i don't really find the flashbacks to be as interesting as probably the main storyline mm. Um, because you're reading the book probably more mostly for that main storyline and your flashbacks are used to put, to give you some character detail. But in Blaze, I the flashback is is the joy for me of the most mm-hmm. of that book. I love learning about this young man's upbringing. And it's done in such a, it's written in such a sparse way with such a sparse language, but 
he is able to convey such emotion. Blaze is this massive character who's always like a like he's six foot five or something. He's built like a massive boxer, and this teacher just pushes him and pushes him. And there's this euro euphoric moment where Blaze punches him in the face and knocks him out, and you're just as a reader going, "Yes, <laughs> um, so yeah." yeah it's, there's real catharsis, and he's wearing his influences really heavily there, isn't he? You know, kind yeah. of as you say, of mice and men and Steinbeck and these writers that King was hugely uh, influenced by and, and taught, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, again, so Blaze. It's completely different than any of those 70s books. It's not a horror book. It's not in that category. So you can see as a publisher why, well, if you want to go down this thing and if you've got fans that like this story, you change in directions this early in your career might not suit. It would be fascinating, isn't it? Because I, I agree with you. I think Blaze, I stumbled across it only a few years ago and it I thought it was absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Uh, the character study, I really fell completely head over heels in love with, with the yeah. vulnerability of that gentle giant and the predicament yeah. uh, that he's in. And it is a phenomenal read, but yeah. it is, yeah, a complete character study. And on the back of Carrie, I mean, on some levels, maybe a braver choice, but it could have potentially be career suicide or it could have wrong-footed people. It would be the difficult second album, right? Yeah. Whereas Salem's yeah. Lot broadened the palette and really was a commercial hit. It would have been interesting to see what happened if Blaze was second book. And, you know, argument could be said that Blaze and Carrie are very, very similar. You know, they focus on the one particular character, Carrie or Blaze, and it's this sort of... Um, this sort of odyssey around that car around those characters, you know, in Blaze, he steals, he, he kidnaps a young child with the idea of ransoming them off to the family that the, the child's from because they're wealthy. And you find out all this stuff about, you know, the police force that are closing in on him and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Seeing McCarry and the bullies that bully her and, and the children and all that stuff that are within the school. So it perhaps would be sort of like he came away from Carrie and just not regurgitated, but this is a story. I, I know how to tell the story now. Or I know how to tell a story in this way. So yeah. I'm just going to do it again because I feel like I can improve upon the model or, you know, this idea intrigues me. And then you've got Salem's Lot, which is just so different. It's just so, you know, it's just, it, as you say, it's a massive broadening of the palette. That that 70s decade for you uh, 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 as a king, you know, c completist, Super fan. I mean, you, you know, avid reader. The seventies hits pretty high, right? That swings yeah, to the fences. Like yeah, like consistently overall in the seventies has been. You know, I feel is fantastic. I think that's why they're still remembered. You know, again, he's mm. taken these architects. You know, prior vampires, haunted house, plague novel. You know, mm. and and you know, basically creating his take on them and having his take on them I think mm -hmm. as we get into the 80s then you get to see a lot more experimentation mm -hmm. and a lot more sort of uh, not originality that would be the wrong word because I think the 70s books are still original but in in the fact that he's just like I'm not no I'm no longer dealing with the sort of horror tropes I'm going to I'm going to create I'm going to subvert it I'm going to create my own horror tropes if you know what I mean yeah yeah so yeah, so now, so, wow, the 70s, the 70s, the 70s, fascinating diving into that decade with you, Jamie, where it all began, where it all began. But yeah, the foundation. 
this is the foundation. But now, listen, this is where the listeners are going, well, come on, boys. What, what, what have you got? What are the ratings? So unbelievably, especially for me, as I mean, you you can have a rating system because you're a published, respected, renowned author. I'm not. <laughs> I host a podcast, though. So we have done <laughs> we've done for a little bit of fun. Uh, we have done our own ratings, our five star ratings, just for a bit of fun. We know, disclaimer, that everybody's... Uh, you know, ratings are redundant and everyone has their own reaction to it and their own story. But these, for a little bit of a laugh, are our ratings of King's books in the 70s. It's Jamie- our way of kind of, I suppose, making sense of which books that we really love are better <clears throat> in terms of the, trying to find which is the best. Yeah, exactly. That we, and then- we, we, we favour because there's a few in here that are really fantastic reads. Yeah. And how do you, you know? So. Yeah, exactly. And I love the fact, I think you mentioned about you're rating them against... Each I other, really as in it. King's words. Yeah. So, so I'm reading this... Salem's Law yeah. against Rage. Like that's the way it's, I. Yeah, I, I love that. Read. Yeah, I think that's the way to do it. Approach it from reading his writing against his writing. You know. Yeah, exactly. But it is interesting because it does definitely tally sometimes with. I know some of the books that I've recommended. If someone said to me, "Oh, listen, which one do you reckon is?" and I'm like, oh, "Well, this one for me in my head." I can make sense of it by going, that's a five star. This one, not so much. So enough of that. Let's get down to brass tacks and numbers and figures and hard cash and hard currency. Carrie, what do you got? Five stars for me. Five stars. Wow. So he knocks it out of the park for you with the opening book. Mm -hmm. He does. I I mean, it's one of those books maybe I read six times by him. I just absolutely love it. I, you know, it's just so brilliant and fast paced. And I I know he describes it as a bit like an unbaked cookie or something like that. But for me, every time it hooks me, I love it. You know? Brilliant. Love it. For me, it's a four. Um, Again, I've only read only the once. Uh, So, really up for doing another reread with it but of course it was just you know it was the one that was like wow oh carrie yeah this is where it all began um yeah astonishing to open the book with that character and inside her head so four stars for me mm-hmm. salem's lots next salem's lots i give salem's lot a very very a very strong sturdy four <coughs> five for me five wow man yeah i am very generous in the 70s i don't think i'm actually being generous this is just generally how i feel these novels changed my life i read these in order when i was a kid and and to this day whenever i reread them i just fall in love with them so yeah totally Uh, absolutely um genius where next the shining Oh, the shining. I mean, I so again, a betting man. I I think we probably both are very lined up with this one. It's a five star read, right? Yeah, absolutely. You couldn't argue that. You couldn't yeah. argue against it being anything less than that. Come on, people. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's just for me. The shining is in the seventies for me. What I would say misery is for the eighties. And I know we're going to cover that when we look at the eighties, Yeah, it's the two for me are almost kind of twins in that psychological horror. Um, That's interesting since they're both set in the same state and very close to one another. Mm, well, there we go. That's, that's why we got you on the show, man. Cause you're, yeah, you're mm. pulling the threads together beautifully. That's yeah. Yeah. That's it for me. Where yeah. now? Rage. Oh, right. So, NA for me, because I've not done Rage. Oh, 
one star for me. I unfortunately oh. have done rage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it might be a good thing I can't get hold of it anywhere, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, my star is basically, you know, we, we talked about it when we did the seven, when we talked about the book itself and uh, the fact that, you know, Charlie Decker is such a hard person to be in the head of because he's, yeah. he's just like bile. But in some ways that is good writing. But just for me to be entertained and to enjoy reading, I just didn't enjoy it. Yeah. Next one's Night Shift. Night Shift. Uh, for me, it is. And again, it's tricky, isn't it? We're going to find when we do some of the collections. Um, but that that's a 3.5 for me. 4.5 for me. Again, I, I would love to give it full five stars, but I think it's it's got some of his best short stories in it and they're really effective. But again, it's a collection. And sometimes when, you know, it just that's what the way it works with collections. Yeah. Um, the Stand is next. I know. <laughs> I thought long and hard about this one, actually. Um, and I have plumped for a 3.5 for the stand. Ooh. Ooh. Um, Good for you. Yeah. I, um, yeah. It just no, I think that's a proud thing to do because, yes, I, I understand where you, uh, yeah. Yeah. What do, you, what do you go for? Four stars. Four stars. Yeah. It has great memories. And I remember being amazed by the book. But I think if you're honest with yourself, mm. the best part is the first third and the other two parts don't really live up to the what the first third of that achieves. I and think that, yeah. yeah, I think that's beautifully put. And I, I remember reading it in the pandemic and just it, it just didn't quite. Again, I think there's some excess to it and I think there's it could be really trimmed. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it didn't quite wow me, but I did spend about a day just walking around in my head people thinking well he's clearly thinking really important thoughts and <laughs> i literally was going now do i do 3.5 or go for four i mean i don't want to feel disloyal here because it's such an <laughs> iconic book and it's brilliant i just remember the opening section just grabbed me by the absolute throat and I yeah. just thought, oh my gosh. And then it never, it couldn't sustain it. Whereas some of the later books, you know, um, you know are able to sustain it. So, uh, but yeah, a, a very solid 3.5. Yeah. Long walk next. Long walk, uh, my honeymoon read, uh, <laughs> that romantic tale. Uh, that's, uh, that's a three for me. Um, great concept, I thought. Uh, and I remember, you know, kind of moved at a decent pace. Oh, thank you. What about for you, man? Same three, three, yeah. Same, same thoughts. Um, Dead Zone's next. There's a what do you got, man? Uh, Dead Zone has got to be a solid five. You know, it's just, it's it's one of those books that just you know is just phenomenal with each read. It's just you just become so in love with Johnny Smith and Sarah. You become so you know you you fall in love with Johnny as a character and just King King achieves wonders in that book. I feel and mm. real scares as well with Frank Dodd and Glenn, mm. and Greg Silson. Yeah, I <clears throat> so I went for in the end four point five. Um, and it's interesting. Explain my thinking behind that is that. I want more Frank Dodds. And <laughs> I think I think it's brilliant what he does because he's like, no, 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 we'll dive into that, but then we're going to pull back and then we're going to look at Greg. Um, I wanted more of that. And I just find the, you know, uh, the the assassination scene um, in inverted commas 
it's just left me feeling so heartbroken and bereft and um yeah. on on some levels and i think it's it's he makes exactly the right call every decision he makes as as an author there is right um i wanted just a bit more time with dodd and stilson than some of maybe some of the political fillings in i think that is a little extended at times yeah. um yeah. But there's no denying it's a real shift. It's a book where there's a real shift in tone and intent. I feel I feel it's a real landmark novel for him. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, and what a what a way to finish off his de- uh, the seventies decade. Absolutely. And from that, you know, fr- from the seventies, we've heard you know the the star system there. If you had someone coming up to you and and saying, look, you know, I want to delve into early classic King. And you were to, you know, recommend say one mm-hmm. from the seventies. Well, what, what would you go for? What would be your top one from there? Probably the Dead Zone. I think it's the most accessible. I think, and it's yeah. the most, uh, yeah, the Dead Zone. I'm aware that for a lot of people now that are reading Salem's Lot is a slow burn. Mm-hmm. I never find that when I read that. I'm so engaged with all of that book, but it does have a. There is a period where he's setting up the score of the town, and perhaps some people would be like, "Where's the vampires?" <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, Jamie fantastic romp through the 70s um so as you say the 80s is when he starts to get experimental so uh constant listeners please join us for our next episode as we jamie guides us and takes our hand through the dark and guides us through the 80s period of stephen king jamie again thank you so much my friend been a real pleasure King Size was written and presented by Matt Robinson and Simon Balkan. Edited and produced by Matt Robinson. Music, Storm Coming by Last Picture Show, available on Spotify. Find us on Instagram at King Size Podcast. If you like what you hear, please drop us a review and subscribe to the show. <laughs>